still in chapter 13 of verse 24 through 30, and we're going to read 36 through 43 also. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of, he- of heaven may, c- may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed, sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, Did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. In 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered them, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who has sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. You may have a seat. So last week we read through this parable and we read through the explanation that Jesus gives. And we spent the time just sort of setting ourselves into the mindset of Jesus' original audience as He gave the parable. He stood in a boat and He gave these parables. Um, And also Matthew's original Jewish audience, we believe that there, there is good warrant to believe that as Matthew spoke as a Jewish man, he was writing primarily to a Jewish audience in the first century And so we tried to spend the time just getting our minds out of the 21st century and into that first century mindset to understand what it means when Jesus gives this parable and what it means when He explains it and what He wanted His original audience to get from this parable. And we we showed, or or I tried to to help you understand, that what Jesus is doing with, with almost all of the parables, He's doing two different things. He's trying to dispel wrong thinking. That would be the the negative side of it. And he's also trying to produce right thinking. That's the positive side of his of, of his intentions here. He can if he gets rid of the negative thinking, if he dispels negative thinking and just leaves his hearers or us in a, a neutral state, he's not finished his task. He also wants to produce in his hearers and produce in us 
a right understanding, a, 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 um, a positive movement towards a right understanding of the kingdom where we are beginning to wrap our minds around and grasp what the kingdom is, what life in the kingdom looks like and what it looks like in this world. So he's dispelling wrong thinking and he's producing right thinking. And the wrong thinking we saw last week is this. We looked at many different Old Testament passages and we saw that what the Jewish people of this day thought was that when the Messiah comes and when the kingdom of heaven is ushered in on the earth, that all opposition to that kingdom would be vanquished. It would be done away with. They believed all unrighteousness would disappear. It would be trampled under the feet of this mighty warrior Messiah. And they also believed that the nation of Israel would finally be exalted back to a place of prominence. They would be looked at as this great and mighty people of God that God has finally put back on a a pedestal of sorts for the the nations to, to exalt. That's the wrong thinking. That's what they expected to happen. The right thinking we put under two points that I began to unpack last week that Jesus teaches from this parable. Two points of right thinking. And they are these. The kingdom of God is a present reality. It's not something where they, they were still waiting to come. It is a present reality in spite of the continuing presence of evil. And that the ultimate separation of the wicked unto judgment and the righteous unto glory is inevitable. It's coming just not until the end of the age. They were expecting sort of a kingdom to fall out of the sky, the, the Messiah to ride out of the clouds and all of it to be done away with in a moment. And this parable teaches us, along with the other parables, that it doesn't happen that way. And so he's trying to get rid of their wrong thinking and help them think rightly about what the kingdom is. So what I want to do today is take that first point, that the kingdom of heaven is a present reality in spite of the presence of evil. I want to take that first point and I want to prove it from the parable. I want to walk just verse by verse through the parable and then the explanation and prove it and then by way of application talk about what we can expect life to be like on this earth in light of this this truth. And then next week we'll do the same thing with the second point. Using the parable to prove these points. So just like the, the other parable, we're just going to go back and forth. There'll be two major headings. The parable given and then the parable explained and under each of those headings, I'm just going to walk verse by verse through each of the sections. So first, the parable given, beginning in verse 24. We, we begin here last week, and so just by way of reminder, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to, and we can stop there, what that the word may be compared to could be better translated has become like. It's, it's, a, it's a past tense phrase. In other words, he's saying the kingdom of situa- the kingdom situation has become like the situation of this farmer. It's past tense. It's already here. So as Jesus gives the parable, the very first time, it's already here. And then as Matthew records it, it's already past tense. And so as we read it, the coming of the kingdom is already past tense. It's already come. And oftentimes we, we, we've used the phrasing already but not yet. It's not 
fully consummated. There are things we're looking forward to happen in the future. But as far as just the presence of the kingdom, it is here. It was present when Jesus was speaking. And then he continues, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So we see something here in these two verses. We have a farmer, a sower, a gardener who's sowing good seed. And we see that in verse 24. And by the time we get to verse 25, we realize that this good seed is wheat seeds. That's his intended goal is to grow wheat in this field. That shows us what he desires to grow. He wants to produce wheat. But an enemy has come and has sowed weeds. This, the word for weeds here, almost every commentator agrees that this is talking about a, a plant called darnel, which was a, a, a pest plant that looks almost exactly like wheat in its early stages. And if you have the English Standard Version, the footnote in my Bible says probably darnel, a wheat-like weed. And all commentators almost agree that that's what's been spoken of here. We've often heard of the parable of the wheat and the tares. Well, the word is not tares. It's probably this plant called darnel. And so it's growing up among the wheat. And the word among means throughout. It's, it's, it's mingled in and mixed in. So there's not a row of wheat and then a row of weeds and then a row of wheat and a row of weeds or a a quadrant of wheat here and a quadrant of wheat here. It's, or weeds here. It's, it's all intermingled and mixed up. That's, that's the picture here. And that's important because Darnell, as it grows, its root system gets intertwined beneath the earth with the other plants that are around it. And that will come into play later on. Now, these parables, this, the story along with the parable... They usually don't take into account a, a, a chronological time frame. Jesus doesn't say now six months later or two weeks later. He just lays out this story. So the picture here is that the farmer has sowed his seed and probably overnight as his workers were sleeping, a, an enemy has come in, has sowed weeds while they were sleeping and then time has to pass because... This darnel, these weeds, and the wheat, they look the same for almost all of their lives until we get to verse 27 and explains how they, they knew. But it says, or verse 26, I mean. Verse 26 says, So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. So after the wheat grew up and grew to maturity and produced their grain, that's when the weeds appeared that is, they were able to see that these are not wheat. This is a mature plant. It's producing grain. That's what I wanted. These plants, they looked like wheat for a long time, but they're not producing what I want. Therefore, I know, the farmer says, these are the, the, the servants say, I know these are not what I planted. These are weeds. So after maturing, the grain produced by the wheat is evidence that it is wheat. And the lack of grain produced by the weeds is evidence that it's not wheat. It's weeds. 
We can kind of see the similarities between this parable and the last parable. That you, you look for the fruit, the produce at the end to see what it actually is. A lot of times that takes some time as you watch for fruit to see what something actually is. So they've grown to maturity. They've produced their grain. In verse 27, we have two questions from the servants of this sower, this farmer. They ask, it says, the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? There's two questions. First question, did you not sow good seed in your field? Now think about this. They have now been able to see wheat grow and grain produced. So they know he produced some, or he planted some good seed. So the question is not, did you plant good seed or bad seed? The question is, did you plant some good seed that had some bad seed mixed into it? Did you plant, in other words, did, did that seed that you plant have some, some mixed in bad seeds? And the answer, we can see in verse 24, the answer it says he sowed good seed. So the answer is, yes, I planted good seed. I only planted good seed. That's all we should expect to grow from this field based on what the sower had planted, is good seed. Second question then that immediately follows, how then does it have weeds? If all you planted was good seed, how then does it have weeds? It had to be another sower, another planter. In verse 28, he answers, he said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? So he gives an answer. He knows he only planted good seed, so it had to be an enemy. It had to be someone that hates him, that wants to sabotage his work, that would do something so vile, so, so harmful as to plant these weeds in and amongst his wheat. And so then that leads to the third question. Do you want us to go get these weeds out? Uproot the weeds. Now these are good servants, and they want to do good. So they're using their logical thinking. They know, and we learned this from the last parable, weeds can be disruptive. Weeds can cause harm. Weeds can choke out the wheat if they're not taken care of. So the servants are thinking, well, the weeds have to come out. We have to get rid of them. So in other words, they're asking, do you want us to go out and do the really difficult work of plucking out every single individual weed to get it out of this field so that your wheat plants can grow without these hindrances, without being disrupted. They can grow without disturbance, without hassle, without, or grow with, with ease and, and safety. Do you want your wheat to grow in peace and prosperity and ease and comfort? Is that not what you want, Master? It would be a hard job for them to do this, but they're willing to do it. So they're asking. And in verse 29, he gives a very wise answer. He says, No, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. See, this, this master, this farmer, he knows that it's, it's actually more dangerous to try to go out and pull up the weeds than it would be to just let the weeds grow along with the wheat. Leave it until a time when we can pull it all up together. This is quite a clever trick by this enemy. 
See, by the time the weeds are mature enough to see that they're weeds, and the wheat is mature enough to see that it's wheat, the root systems are already entangled. You can't pull out the roots without also pulling up the, or you can't pull out the weeds without also pulling out the wheat. And so the, he says, no, just leave it. It's safer to just leave it and let it grow, and when, it, when the time comes, we'll pull it all out together. And what we get, we get. The master has decided that both will grow together until the harvest. That's his answer. Now, we're going to stop there, move over to the explanation, and go through to that point on the explanation. Next week, we'll pick up with the rest of the parable, the rest of the explanation to prove the second point. But look at verse 36 and, number, and heading number 2, the parable explained. Verse 36, Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. Again, remember he, he spoke everything to them in parables, but his disciples came to him privately. That's where we get these explanations. The, the common people didn't get these. So we get the benefit of their questioning, and, and it's obvious that even the disciples weren't co- quite clear on on what all of these parables were trying to teach. And so they ask, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. In verses 37 to 39, Jesus gives explanations of the characters of the parable. So we're moving into Jesus' own exposition of His parable. And there are many different characters in this parable. And when it comes to preaching this parable... What I could do is take every one of these characters and preach a sermon. I could preach a sermon called The the Sower is the Son of Man and The the Good Seed is the Sons of the Kingdom and take a week on every one of those. Because there 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 are points to be made here, but that's not the point of the parable. The problem with that... Um, approach, one commentator calls the, the rule of end emphasis. That is, when you're telling a story or you're, you're um, giving a teaching, what the main point you're trying to make usually comes at the end. This is why we leave the punchline of a joke at the end and not at the beginning. Because if you tell it at the beginning, there's no point in hanging around for the rest. You, you, you laugh your heads off and you go away. To get to the other side, Wait a second, wait a second, why did chicken cross the road? It doesn't matter, because I already know, he, we know the punchline. So we don't go through these and try to pull out little applications necessarily for every one of these little points. And Jesus goes, verses 37 through 39, in kind of a, a, a rapid fire succession, just naming off the parts. It's almost like the movie credits. The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. The reapers are the angels. And he just lists them all. He's making no points. He's just telling us who the characters are so we can get our minds wrapped around the the setting here. And it's not until verse 40 that he actually begins to get to the point of the parable. That's how we know, oh, that's what he's trying to teach us. Verse 40, when he says, just as the weeds... And then the last half, so it will be. That's where we know, oh, here's how he's tying it together. So he tells us that the main point begins at verse 40. Now that does not mean that these analogies aren't important. They are very important. We have to know these things. 
how he correlates these pictures and what they stand for so that we can understand how this works. We live in, in the, the, as citizens of the kingdom and there's still evil and Jesus is telling us how this is going to work and we need to know all of these different parts so that we can understand how it's going to work at the end of the age. What's it going to be like when the harvest comes? And so we need to know this and we're going we're to walk through them and um, some of them will get more emphasis than others but they're not the main point. That's, that's kind of what I'm getting at. The main point doesn't come until verse 40. So the first one in verse 37, he says, the one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. Now we have covered this in detail. In June of 2013, it's on our website, I preached a sermon about Jesus being the King of Kings from Daniel chapter 7. And, and, and this is where he gets this title, the Son of Man. This is Jesus' favorite title for himself. And he gets this concept from Daniel chapter 7. Son of man is actually quite relevant to this topic or this idea of the kingdom. Usually I could just say, son of man, reference to Jesus. He gets it from Daniel 7 and move on. But I want to read this section from Daniel 7 again and quickly draw some conclusions here. Daniel 7, beginning in verse 13, says this. This is Daniel speaking. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days. That's important. He came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, this is important, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's where Jesus gets His title, Son of Man. Now, when we look at this passage from Daniel 7, we could ask a question. The Ancient of Days is a reference to God the Father. And this says... Daniel saw one like a son of man come to the Ancient of Days. Now, when did the Son of Man, Jesus, come to the Ancient of Days, having been away from the Ancient of Days? That would be after His incarnation, after His life, His death, His resurrection. He then returns to the Ancient of Days and is presented before Him, having completed all of the work that the Ancient of Days had given him to, to accomplish. So this everlasting dominion, this glory, this invincible kingdom was given over to Jesus after His ascension, after His humiliation on the earth was completed. And this says His dominion is an everlasting dominion presently. It was given after the ascension and is presently an everlasting dominion. It was at that point that Jesus comes to the Father and says, Father, I have completed all of the work. It is finished. I have done what you gave me to do. I have done all of the redeeming work for the people you gave to me to redeem. And the Father hands over the kingdom, hands over the dominion, hands over the glory, and now He rules. Again, prophesied before Jesus was ever born. In other words, what we learn from this is that the sower of the good seed is the king of the kingdom. 
Or we could say Mary Magdalene's suspicions were right. The gardener is Jesus. The king is the gardener. Just trying to tie together some biblical theology there of the garden. The sower is the son of man. The sower is the king. Verse 38 says the field is the world. The word here for world, remember I said in the Bible, you can't just read world and assume that it means anything. You have to, have to look into it. And the word for world here is cosmos. It is not, notice, church. It does not say church. When you read commentators, it is unbelievable how many commentators read this and say, well, this is God sowing His people in the church. And so when they read this and they get to the point that we must exist alongside of evil, they say there's no warrant for us seeking a purified church. We should not seek to rid the church of evil and sin. Therefore, church discipline goes out the door. When Jesus Himself in Matthew 18 says, you know, He prescribes church discipline. So that wouldn't make any sense. The word here is world. Cosmos. The world order. This is the concept or idea of this world as opposed to the next world or the, the spiritual world. Generally not thought of as something tangible or, or touchable like the dirt or the globe. It's just the idea of the world. Oftentimes spoke of as the evil of this present world as opposed to God's kingdom. But here there's no designation. It just says the world. Where we live. The world, the, the present state of things. The kingdom or the, the field is the world. How we live now. The next one he lists is the good seed. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. Now, in the previous parable, the seed was the gospel of the kingdom. Here, the good seed is the produce of that gospel, or it is those who carry that gospel, but it's not necessarily the, the message. Not so much the message as it is those who are positively, savingly affected by the message. The sons of the kingdom. So what we have so far is the king of the kingdom plants his sons in this present world order. We're here. If you're a Christian, this is descriptive of what has happened with your being here. Then he says, the weeds are the sons of the evil one. The sons of the evil one. 1 John 3.10 says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. You have two options. You're either a child of God or a child of the devil. When he says the sons of the evil one, he's talking about the seed of the serpent. All unbelievers, all who are outside of God's saving grace, whether they are savagely antagonistic towards the gospel and towards Christ, or whether they're just the sweet old lady across the road who's been going to her Catholic church her whole entire life. She's an unbeliever. She is a seed of the serpent. Because we have two options. Again, you're a child of the devil or you're a child of God. You are a slave to righteousness or you are a slave to sin. You're dead in trespasses or you are alive in Christ. You're either a citizen of God's kingdom or you are a citizen of the domain of darkness. There's no neutrality. So when this says the sons of the evil one, this is every 
unbelieving, unregenerate person. They all fall into the category sons of the evil one, sons of that ancient serpent, the devil, who is Lucifer. They are his children if they are unbelievers. Then verse 39. He says, The enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the word here, devil, we get our word, you heard the word diablo, diabolos, we talked about it in the last parable. The accuser of the brethren, the, the slinger, the thrower of accusations. In the previous parable, he would swoop in to snatch the word away. Here, he sows his evil sons in and amongst the work that God has been doing. He, he plants his offspring and continues the work that he began in the Garden of Eden. And the work that continued in Genesis 4 when Cain killed his brother Abel. And the work that he continued at the Tower of Babel. And the work that he continued with, with Job. And the work that he continued in the wilderness when he, content, when he tempted Jesus. He hasn't stopped. He will not stop. He's going to continue his plan. He's going to continue working. So at this point we, can, we put these two things, the parable and the explanation, side by side and we see that God has His people in the world and Satan has His people in the world. And Satan is on a mission of deception and sabotage. He's the enemy. He's trying to deliberately wreak havoc on everything that God has been doing from the beginning of time. He can't thwart it. He can't stop it. He can't ruin it. All he can do is make it troublesome and make it hard and make it difficult for us. The next point that Jesus makes is the harvest is the end of the age. The harvest would be the time when they would go out and they would pull up the wheat and the weeds and they would finally gather in. They could take inventory of what all they had and they would begin to uh, prepare these things for, for the next stage of, of getting it ready for food or whatever they were going to use their, their crop for. And it comes at the end of the age. Now remember we talked about who ages. This age and the age to come. Jesus makes this reference, this age, the age to come. Paul makes this reference, this age, the age to come. And Jesus says, he refers to the age to come, eternal life. So if we were to ask the question, when is the time for taking inventory of all of the kingdom work, the answer can't be the end of the eternal age because it has no end. It has to be the end of this age. So when this age is done, that is when the harvest happens. When this age finishes, it's harvest time. As an aside, this is somewhat encouraging. When your work and your labors are, are not, they don't look like what you want them to look like. You're, you're sharing the gospel or you're, maybe you're not seeing the fruit you want to see. The harvest is not until the end of the age. We're not done until the end of the age. Then he says, the reapers are the angels. Those who will be sent out to gather in the wheat. From the four corners of the earth are the angels of heaven. So, remember that all of this is coming in contrast to the false expectations of the Jews. They expected a kingdom to come in great military power and might. They expected extravagance and, and regality. They expected all evil and unrighteousness to just be eradicated. And they expected us, the Gentile dogs, to be utterly removed from the scene. The parable of the sower tells us that the kingdom spreads through the preaching and the victory of the gospel. And this parable tells us so far 
that rather than having all unrighteousness removed, we, the sons of the kingdom, must expect to live alongside of the sons of the evil one. There will be evil and sin. There will be death and and destruction. There will be immorality and greed all around us, all the time, intermingled, mixed throughout. So we learn that the kingdom of God is a present reality in spite of the presence, of the continuing presence of evil. So, I'm going to apply this um, with four observations. The first one is this. The wheat still grows. The wheat always grows. If it's wheat, it grows. At no point in the parable does the wheat ever stop growing. Or does the wheat ever turn into weeds? The wheat is known by its production of grain. And then we get to the other side and we learn that the wheat is the, are the, is the fruitful sons of the kingdom. Fruitful Christians. Those who have heard and who understand and who bear fruit and who obey the commands of God and they're not burdensome. That's the wheat. It always produces fruitful believers. This is the beneficial outworking of the proclamation of the gospel. We are the wheat producing grain. And we always grow, whether that be individual plants. Individual plants still grow. Every individual Christian, if you are a believer, you will grow and you will continually be molded into the image of Christ in spite of the presence of evil. John 17, 17, Jesus prayed to His Father, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. He prayed it to His Father. His Father will answer His prayer. The disciples will be sanctified. We will grow. Paul says Christ has become to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. If we have Christ, we have sanctification. Now that doesn't mean He just does it and we just sit here, we just let go and let God. No, He works in us both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So so we have Christ, the Holy Spirit's inside of us working and we will grow. The wheat and it, as individual plants always grows. And the rows still grow. Always. In spite of the presence of evil. The local church will always grow. Local churches will be built up. And they will flourish. We often use this phrase. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it through to completion. Well the use in those verses. Or that verse is, is plural. Or are plural. They're, they're written to the church at Philippi. He's saying you Christians at Philippi. You local church. God will be faithful to finish the work He began in you. Every local church, if they will be faithful, if we will be faithful, and if we will be obedient, Christ will tarry with us. He will leave His lampstand with us, and He will work in and amongst us, and we will always grow, and always flourish, and always be used for His kingdom if we will be obedient and hold to our first love. The rose still grow, and then the field still grows in spite of the presence of evil. The universal church around the globe always grows. Always. Christ said, I will build my church. Not I will slow down or or, I sure hope I can or I'm going to try my best. He will build His church. It's always growing. As a matter of fact, the church usually grows faster in the face of evil than it does in times of peace and prosperity. And we've seen that in this nation. 
We've had peace and prosperity for far too long and the church has went in the dumps. And what we might can hope to see happen is that maybe persecution coming to the church will get us out of our seats and spur us on to, to work harder. So the true wheat will always grow up and produce grain. Second observation. The weeds often appear to be wheat at first. Remember that it wasn't until the wheat began to produce grain that the weeds appeared, that they were noticeable. It takes a while. The fruit of the good seed makes evident the lack of fruit of the bad seed. And so weeds often appear to be wheat at first. They can creep in unaware. Jude 4 says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. They creep in to the church unaware. They come from among us. Acts 20, verses 29 and 30, Paul warned the, the Ephesian elders, I know that after my departure... Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will, rise, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. They will come up from among us, from the church. They creep in unaware. They come from among us. They go out from us. 1 John 2.19 says they went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might be plain might become plain that they all are not of us. Notice all of the pronouns here. Us, 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 you. They, they creep into the church unaware. They rise up amongst the church. They go out from among us. So, be careful that it is not you. Hebrews 3, 12 and 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Those are all plural yous. He's speaking to the church and he's saying, watch out in your group. Look at yourselves and make sure none of you have an evil unbelieving heart. Ask yourself right now, is it me? Am I a weed planted? Have I crept in unaware? Am I rising in amongst the church to, to draw away disciples after myself? Am I here under false pretenses? Am I just putting on a front? In, in the year, days, weeks, months, years to come, will I prove myself to have been sowed by the evil one? Oftentimes it's difficult to see the weeds at first. It takes time and they appear to be wheat in the stages of, of immaturity. In immaturity, wheat and weeds look the same. And this is the same with Christians and non-Christians. You might see a non-Christian who can put on a front for a good while and look like a Christian. You might see a Christian who's just immature and you wonder sometimes, I don't know if he's saved or not. They look the same. It's not until maturity that you're actually able to tell these things. Maturity and growth will provide or will prove who is actually born again and who isn't. The weeds appear to be wheat at first. They creep in unaware. They come from among us. They go out from us. Is it you? Are you a weed in the church and in the world? Number three, third observation, 
Our labor is not to uproot all of the weeds in the world. Remember, this is not the church. It's the world. God judges those outside, Paul says. We judge those inside. Matthew 18, Jesus gave us a prescription for church discipline. One of the first times, it might be the first time, the word church is mentioned in the New Testament. Peter says, judgment begins with the household of God. So when it comes to the church, we should absolutely be rooting out all the evil. But when it comes to the world, our job is not to walk outside these doors and try to get rid of all of the evil. But we should do what we can inside the parameters of God's Word in this matter. Like, preach the gospel. We've been commanded to preach the gospel. We can do that. We can call people to repentance individually and publicly. The government. We can call them. It is our job as the church to call our government officials to repentance. That's why John the Baptist ended up in prison. Look at all of the, all of, almost all of the prophets of the Old Testament. That's why they were hated so much. It is our job to expose the darkness in the world. We're, we're salt. We're light. We, we can take political action regarding issues inside the appropriate framework of submission. We have things we can do as citizens of this nation in, in regards to moral issues. We can decry publicly the public and private sins of public people. We can say, shut down Planned Parenthood. Lock them up. End it. We, we can do all of these things and we should be doing these things. We can tell the truth about the sexual revolution or whatever, whatever's happening. If, the, if God's Word is contrary to it, we as the church can say, this is not right. Repent. But we cannot wield the sword of judgment. That, the, the, the authority that God has given to the state, not the church. So we can't go around locking people up, putting them in the basement of the church building and say, sorry, you stole, you know, it's our job. No, we can't do that. We can preach the gospel, call people to repentance, expose darkness. We can call our senators and our congressmen, write them letters. All these things are within the biblical boundaries. We need to be ready to do these things more and more as we live in a society where evil is present. Fourth one. As we live as kingdom citizens on mission, as ambassadors of our king, publishing the edict of the gospel, we need to expect various responses to the gospel. We need to be ready for this. Most of us have grown up in a time and in a place where when you share the gospel, most people respond with, oh yeah, I've done that. Or, yeah, I'm saved. Or, yeah, I go to church. Or something. Every now and then you might run into an atheist who's, who's maybe nice, but just rejects you. But we need to be ready for various responses. Like this. Sympathizing unbelief. Some people who are lost want to have nothing to do with the gospel. Sympathize with the Christian worldview and, and actually maybe delight in the presence of Christians because of our worldview. This is just common grace. That common grace and the Imago Dei, the image of God in humanity where people who are not Christians can say, hey, those Christians might actually have a point and they will sympathize with some of the things we're saying. 
Roman Catholics are going to agree with us on abortion. Most of them, not all of them. They're, they're going off the deep end, a lot of them also. But many Roman Catholics will agree with us on issues of abortion. Does that mean they believe the gospel? Absolutely not. Does that mean we're going to lock arms with them and say we stand against abortion? No. But they're going to agree. And, and, and they're going to see that our worldview is, is right on that issue. But they're not believers. So there will be sympathizing unbelief. Then there will be apathy. Many times the views of Christians and our calls to repentance are just ignored. This is not a good thing. This is because of our apparent hypocrisy and because of our um, because the, the, the visible church for so long has had a short attention span concerning issues, whatever pops up on the news feed, we just hop on that train. We hop off the train we're on, onto the next train, and onto the next train, and onto the next train. And so many in the world are just saying, hey, just, just give it a, a day or two and the Christians will be on to something else. And they ignore what we're saying. If we believe in an issue, let's lock down in that issue and don't be silent until it's addressed. But a lot of times we're just seen as irrelevant and they just, they're apathetic towards everything we say. We, we don't mean anything to anybody. We need to be ready for that. In Europe, the church is irrelevant. It doesn't matter what they say. They're, they're so small and so insignificant, nobody cares. Then there will be those who malign our worldview. In our culture today, many people will slander the Christian worldview. Even they're dead in trespasses and sin, and so we understand that. But they will slander the Christian worldview and adopt an opposing Christian worldview just to say they're opposing Christians, just to publicly display their crossness to the Christians. And so we need to understand that our worldview, some are, they're not going to research. They're not going to study. They're just going to say, if a Christian believes that, I'm going to go the other way. It doesn't matter. So what if homeschool children testings are across the board better than public school? If that's what the Christians are doing, I'm going the other way. I'm sending my kid to Caesar to be educated. So there will be maligning of our worldview. Another one, impediments to practicing our faith and lifestyle. We see this already happening in our culture, and I would expect it to get worse. The, the moral majority will influence those in power in the state to pass laws so that the outward practice of our faith and our worldview becomes difficult, costly, financially, or illegal. And we need to be ready for that. Be ready to pay up. Be ready for it to be more difficult to come to church and have Bible studies. Or illegal. And we must remember that the evidence of our faith, our heads of grain are just going to make more obvious the non-fruit of the unbelieving world. And when that happens, when our light begins to expose their darkness, they're going to do whatever they can to snuff out that light because it shows sons of the evil one, sons of the evil one. There's sons of Satan all around us and they want that light put out. And so they're going to make it difficult, costly, or illegal. And then they'll label us as hateful bigots. Our actions, our worldview, our preaching will be called hate speech. Our calls to repentance will be called slander. The biblical standard of righteousness will be called obnoxious. Sons of the kingdom who actually seek the very best for all people will be marked out as those who are arrogant and schismatic. And we marked out as those who need to be done away with. And that will lead to physical persecution. 
Around the world, our brothers and sisters are already being persecuted all the time. It began with Jesus, and they thought if we can get rid of this man, it'll be done. We'll fix this problem. But they didn't fix it. And then they stoned Stephen, and they realized we've got a problem on our hands, and that's when a great persecution arose because they realized it's not just one man, and it's not just two men. This stuff's growing, and we've got to snuff it out. And that's when Saul began to ravage the church, and it hasn't slowed down since. And you've, probably, you've heard over and over that the more martyrs have been killed in the last hundred years than in all of church history combined. Now that is because there are more Christians than there have ever been, but the numbers are astonishing of persecution and killing of Christians all over the globe, all the time that we don't hear about. We don't know about it. It's happening, and we should not be surprised when it comes to our shores. So what do we make of all this? In Hebrews chapter 10, this, this concept is brought up. It says, you recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, Sometimes being partners with those so mistreated, you had compassion on those in prison, joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. And this is the encouragement from the author of Hebrews in verse 36. You have need of endurance. That's what we have. In light of the present state of things, we have need of endurance. If we get tired at this point, the church won't last. We have need of endurance. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul, will have, my soul has no pleasure in him. And here's the verse. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve our souls. We are not, we cannot be of those who shrink back, cower in fear, and are destroyed. Who batten down the hatches, lock the doors, bolt the church up and say, alright, well let's just huddle here and be quiet. And wait till the evil goes by and lose our souls. We are those who have faith, who are looking towards the future, the coming hope. We are excited and we preserve our souls. We are sons of the kingdom. Planted by the king. He owns the field. It's his field. And these facts shouldn't slow down the kingdom work. They should motivate us to work harder and harder to get the gospel to every corner of the globe, to every people group. So no matter how many weeds there are, the true wheat will always grow, will always multiply, and will always produce grain. Let's pray.